Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, May 20th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. See, now when you're doing your intros, we, we had a reader send in a T-shirt idea that had, like, our intros in line with, I guess, locations, location-based. So I was the Hollywood sign. Uh, Jacob was uh, downtown Austin's Capitol building. And uh, Chris is now uh, was Rocky. And now every time he says that, I'm just going to see Rocky. Oh, no. With the fist pump and everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, it was really cool. Um, I sh- shared it with the whole team. Uh, maybe I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but let's get into the water cooler. Let's let's talk about what we've been doing uh, this weekend. I went to the Renaissance Pleasure Fair, which uh, is in Southern California, and it's a Renaissance fair. It's actually uh, the first Renaissance fair ever in the United States. Uh, I think it was created in the early 1960s and has been going strong. It's one of the biggest I've ever seen. It's uh, one of the most elaborate, like. When we were there this uh, yesterday, there was just so many people in costume and in character, and uh, I videotaped it for a future vlog on the Ordinary Adventures channel. So look forward to that. Um, I did. Uh, I found a. There's lots of booths selling like nonsense. Like you can buy like Jack's magical beans for fifteen dollars or whatever. And there was like one, a couple booths that actually were selling magic wands. And I've never actually wanted to own a magic wand. I have a magic wand from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And uh, uh, as a magician, I've always like kind of brushed aside the the use of magic wands because like there there is a, a good practical use for a magic wand in in traditional magic. Like it's good for misdirection and stuff. But to me, it always comes off as kind of like old you know old school magic that like i kind of like people i think 
see and they're like, oh, I don't want to watch that. Um, so I've never gotten into magic wands, but I came across there was a booth that was selling magic wands that were themed as Star Wars lightsabers. So I bought a green lightsaber magic wand, which I will try to put into my act in some way. Although I feel like introducing that kind of prop, then you got to explain why you're using a lightsaber as a magic wand and then it takes like a minute out of your routine. So I don't know. I'll figure it out. Jacob, you seem like the type that would go and enjoy a Ren Faire. I Every single year, I talk about going to the Ren Faire with my wife. Every single year, we say, yeah, let's do it. And every year, we never do. So maybe. I don't know. Does anybody here go to Ren Faires? I've been to one once before. It was a lot of fun. It's, did, um, did you dress it, up? It's a date drink. I did not. Um, I just um, bought a flower crown and put my head through like a sock and uh, drank a lot. I mean, I guess that's the purpose of Ren Faire anyways. Yep. Yeah. That and watching the jousting and uh, oh, we saw a bird show where like these like hawks like came like within inches of my head flying, you know, from the stage to the back of the the uh, outdoor auditorium. It was great. Um, the other cool thing I did this week is I was invited to the world premiere of John Wick 3 and I was invited by TCL the company that owns the naming rights for the Chinese theater um, the famous man's Chinese theater uh, they don't own the Chinese theater but they own the naming rights um, and I thought I was just going to the world premiere and this is or the I guess US premiere um, and this is like the day before I was hitting theaters I didn't think it was going to be anything special but um and not to say that going to a world premiere is not special, but I didn't. Th- I thought it was going to be the. Uh, I I go to a bunch of world premieres every year. I thought it was going to be the same thing, uh, the typical uh, premiere experience, and um, it was different uh, because I was actually invited by the guys at TCL to sit in their private box. There's two private boxes on top of the uh, the Chinese theater. One is for the people who own the theater and I think they have four seats and then the TCL has like I think like eight or ten seats in another box and then there's actually a couple other boxes if you're looking from the ground floor there's a couple other boxes that aren't actually real they're just you know facades um but uh it was a really cool experience they have like a whole VIP lounge there with like a bar and um it uh I mean you are kind of above the normal viewing area so it's you're like we can't really lean back as much. You're kind of like looking down towards the screen. And um, it's interesting also because you're like closer to the ceiling. So you see those like Dobie at most theaters hanging from the ceiling. Um, people that have been to the theater in LA, or I've gotten tons of questions of like, does it sound any better from up there? No, it doesn't. Uh, the Chinese theater is an old theater and the has a, a little bit of a problem with Echo. Um, they've tried to fix it over the years, but there's not much you can do to, like, a historical, uh, you know, site. Like, you, you can't really, you know, soundproof, like, the walls and stuff like that. So um, it, it sounds the same. It was an incredible experience. I was so happy to be invited up there, and I, I hope uh, maybe someday I, I can go back. Um, but that's what I've been up to, and apparently no one else has been doing things this week because I have the only entry here. Uh, so let's let's talk about those of you who have been reading things. So Jacob, you haven't been doing things, but you've been reading. 
Yeah, I've been poking through uh, the amusement park, 900 Years of Thrills and Spills and the Dreamers and Schemers Who Built Them by Stephen M. Silverman, who has a long list of books about the entertainment industry to his name. And this book was recommended to me by Slash Film contributor Josh Spiegel, who writes our theme park uh, bits column. And as the name implies, this book is the history of the amusement industry, starting in 1100s Europe with the pleasure gardens of England and France, going all the way up to the wizarding world of Harry Potter and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It is this in-depth, beautifully made book full of tons of photographs, lots of art, lots of old school drawings from, you know, centuries past of the first amusement parks, the first roller coasters, you know, the way people wait, the stuff that was seems thrill rides, you know, 300 years ago, like bobsleds. And it is an incredibly fascinating book. If you're interested at all in uh, theme parks, amusement parks, you know, the industry and how it essentially was grown out of, you know, hucksters trying to make a buck uh, to being a multi-billion dollar, you know, industry that is all about pushing the boundaries of technology uh, and from major corporations. It is a, it is probably the definitive, you know, amusement park history book that I've seen and I'm really enjoying it. And Amazon has a really good price and it's a really, it's an oversized book. Um, I think it's thirty-five dollars. Normally, I got it for twenty-two on Amazon, and it feels like a bargain. It's it's a beautiful thing. And Peter, I think you should read this for sure. Okay, Jacob, I have some questions for you because I know you and me, uh, above everyone else here, love to read and listen. Like we listen to Jim Hill's podcast. Like we read the the latest, you know, uh, blog posts on. Um, you know all the all the Disney sites and stuff. Is there a lot to learn here, or is it like just a great recap of? the history of amusement parks well i haven't gotten to the stuff i'm mostly familiar with which is you know back half 20th century uh but this book you know like i said it starts off nearly a thousand years ago and again this is all that's new to me it, it, it tries to understand how you know pleasure parks for people uh, the idea of a vacation was taking a stroll around a lake evolved into the wizarding world of harry potter so it is just i am i'm learning a lot about the early days of, of, of this industry as opposed to you know you know how disneyland was built because people everybody has written a book about how Disneyland was built. So I don't know if that will cover material or not. I'm assuming it will. Uh, but I'm really reinvigorated by the early stuff that I'm in right here so far, which is this the kernel of it. Like, it's the equivalent of saying, in order to get to Avengers Endgame, let's look at Thomas Edison filming, you know, 30-second shorts in the 1890s. That's what it feels like, except it goes back even further. <laughs> well, cool. I'll, I might have to check this out myself. Uh, HT, what if, now that you are done with Dune... What have you been reading? I've been on a bit of a high fantasy kick after finishing Dune. I picked up a copy of The Simmerillion, which is J.R. Tolkien's uh, sort of telling of the history of Middle Earth and all of its various ages and stories. And um, I like it a lot so far. It's, it's really interesting because it's written um, not as like a historic tome, but as a collection of various legends throughout the eons and uh, it ranges from these sort of mythic almost biblical uh, tales of the beginning and the creation of time to more chivalric uh, stories that are like more traditional medieval romances for example and um, it's really interesting to see how his his writing style kind of changes from from story to story, like the the mythic creation ones are definitely done in the way that are written in the way that's like kind of hard to understand because they're very um, dense and, for lack of a better word, highfalutin language. 
<laughs> so uh, it's, but I like it a lot so far, and um, I'm just getting started, so I'm, I'm getting into it. But it is quite dense, and I think I'll probably take a little bit of time reading it, even if it is um, not that long. It just is a lot of information to absorb. Um, I, I, I've had a few friends read this, and it, mm-hmm. like they've described it as like reading like a dense history book. I guess it's kind of like a history book, but I, I, it definitely feels more like a just like a book of a compilation of legends or almost like biblical stories in a way. Um, I would compare it maybe to uh, reading like Beowulf in col- in high school, where it's kind of hard to understand. It has that um, that language that is a uh, of a different time, and the way that J.R. Tolkien is able to ape that is really interesting. But yeah, it's it's. It is kind of like a history book because it is like the history of Middle Earth, but um, I like that it's kind of told in like in uh, contained stories in a way. Yeah, I'm wondering how much this is going to influence the you know that series that's coming to Amazon. What is that uh, next year? Uh, yes, I think it's yeah. next year. I think it's highly going to influence it because the series is supposed to be a prequel, and I know it's drawing a lot from I think the Second Age of Middle Earth, which the Cimmerian gets deep into. So, uh, yeah, I think this will probably be essential reading for for that series. I guess I'll be that expert. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah can, you'll you'll, you'll can... be the expert once it starts airing. Yeah. Um, what else have you been reading? Um, so I've been listening to an audiobook actually of Lord of the Rings. I'm usually not a huge fan of audiobooks. Um, I use, whenever I listen to them, I often just kind of fall asleep to them. This is I feel like a source of, because of I was conditioned to do so. When I was little, my mom used to buy uh, borrow audiobooks from the library uh, to play for me when I was going to bed, and I would just like fall asleep to them and have some really wacky dreams. Um, but my friend highly recommended Phil Dragash's audiobook of Lord of the Rings. And this is actually a fan creation. It's not the official audiobook. And it's probably more akin to an audio drama because uh, Phil Dragash, he um, inserts Howard Shore's scores from the film. He uh, puts on different voices and he puts on um, different like uh, effects, uh, auditory effects throughout the um the audiobook and it's really just um compelling and uh gripping to listen to and something that for me who's not a big audiobook listener really likes to um has really been absorbed by for the past oh I'm how long how many chapters I'm in I think I'm only like three chapters in uh each chapter is like about the first chapter was like an hour and it was an hour of Bilbo of Bilbo's birthday party and I was like I didn't remember this going on this long (laughs) but um it's really good so far and uh it's all available for free online. Uh, he actually posted it all on his website. You can find it on YouTube. And I'm currently listening to it on uh, SoundCloud right now. Okay, maybe we can put a link for that in the show notes. Mm. And you've been also reading some manga? Yeah. Um, I received for um, the 35th on- anniversary of Nausicaa, the Valley of the Winds uh, release, I received the uh, original manga, um, the first issue of the manga, of which the film is adapting, and uh, also the Blu-ray of Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. It's fu- kind of funny because we were talking about this on the podcast last week, and then a couple days later I received the Blu-ray for it, and I was like, oh, I guess uh, that was easy. Just well, think it, and I, I get it. So that was really cool. Um, but By yeah. the way, it's, it's funny how many people are sending like Chris like eBay links on how to like get the Miyazaki movies on DVD or whatever. 
you should watch them, Chris. Um, they're really good. <laughs> Anyways, I had never read the manga of Nazca before. I had only seen the movie. I do know that it was, um, uh, despite what many people kind of assume, it is based off of the manga that Hayao Miyazaki wrote. He actually wrote it without the intention of turning it into a film adaptation. Um, and this was um, something that he started writing soon after his directorial debut, which was The Castle of Cagliostro. And back when he was um, striking out as an anime director, it was very unusual for um, filmmakers, uh, anime filmmakers of the time to uh, do original movies. Most of the time they were adaptations of pre-existing manga. And so um, his ideas, I think, for originals or other I, um, films had gotten shot down. So he decided to write the Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind manga. And um, it became a huge hit. And uh, he eventually turned it into a film adaptation and launched the Studio Ghibli from there. So it's, um, it's really cool just kind of like going into that history and seeing where it all began. The manga definitely follows, uh, or rather the film follows exactly like the first issue of the manga. And I know the manga um, goes on for several issues and the story continues way past where the film ends. Um, I have a friend actually who had read all of the manga and he wasn't actually a fan of the movie because he said that the manga is much better and it's much more intricate and elaborate. So um, I'm curious. I might actually check out the rest of the manga at some point because it is like amazingly well-written and, um, Miyazaki, of course, is an amazing storyteller. So um, I would to see like what he um, had envisioned for the full story of Nausicaa and uh, where it was going before like he decided to go on and do other films. You know, HD, there is a hardcover collection of the entire uh, series that was on Amazon discounted like 20 bucks a few months ago. And I, I, I bought it because I figured I'd get around reading it someday. So be on the lookout for the hardcover collection. I feel like the best way to possibly have all of it. Yeah, I will do that then. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, over the weekend, Ben and I both went and saw the, a press screening of Aladdin, the the new live-action adaptation of the Disney classic. And I think it's fair to say that everybody on this podcast has been dreading this adaptation because you know all the marketing to this thing has kind of given us a bad taste in our mouth. Like, you know, Will Smith as genie looks horrible in the trailers. That clip that they played last week that, uh, that Jacob had a, what did you do? Like, it was like a dissection, a shot by shot of, of how horrible it was on this podcast. Um, so I was kind of dreading this. I was walking into the theater with Ben and I was like, I, I hope at least this is an interesting disaster. <laughs> or an entertaining disaster. And I think, Ben, you said to me, he's like, I don't even expect it to be that or yes. something like that. Yeah. So I am actually surprised to say that this is not a disaster. Uh, it's actually, I, I'm not going to say it's a home run. It's, uh, it's a lot better than I was expecting it to be. Um, it's surprisingly fun. We were in a press screening and there was people laughing. There was people clapping. Uh, Naomi Scott's, uh, does a great job as Jasmine. I think the actor cast of Aladdin is not great. And um, the music in this, like when it sticks closer to the original songbook of Aladdin is better when it tries to do new takes on that material. It's not as good. Um, 
we saw it in 3D, which is actually kind of strange because Disney usually doesn't show press screenings in 3D. And I, I have this theory that 3D kind of hides bad CG. Um, it's it's harder to see bad CG, and I'm, I'm sure that is part of why they showed it to us in 3D. Uh, but it looked it looked great. The the uh, the costumes and the big elaborate sets. I feel like. Um, I don't know. I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this. I, and th- this is sounding like I really liked the film. I, I'm not saying I really liked the film, but uh, it was actually, I don't know. I would, I would give it like a 6.5 out of 10. I don't, I don't know if that's uh, too high. But Ben, I haven't talked to you because I had to run out of my screening to make it to another event that night. Uh, what did you think of Aladdin? I was fully expecting to walk out and be like, that is a one or two out of 10 movie based on everything that we've seen from it so far. And I, uh, man, I was completely won over by this movie and I'm shocked (laughs) by it because I, I was so, um, I was so sure that I was going to hate it. Uh, cause I love the original, but everything about this movie pretty much won me over to it. I think there are like a couple small things, but I would probably give it like a, like an eight out of 10 or something. And I'm oh, shocked wow. to even say that. Like I, I had no, there was, there was nothing, there was zero chance in my mind that the movie would be that good uh, when I walked into it. So I'm, I'm really just sort of um, aghast at how, <laughs> at how they were able to uh, pull something so good out of this. I, and I realize, you know, there's a, a big part of me that is like, that wants to be cynical about the live action Disney remake thing, but uh, setting aside all of the, you know, issues with that I may have with Disney and the way that the company can be run sometimes and all that. And just looking at this movie as a movie um, and, and not bringing in anything outside of that. It's really, really good guys. Like I, I know, I mean, it has really awesome messages. Uh, Jasmine, Naomi Scott's character is a much more um, central figure in the movie. My wife and I were talking about it afterwards, and I think she said something like, it's Jasmine's movie disguised as Aladdin's movie, really. Um, and I think that's that's an accurate read on it. I think uh, Will Smith is actually like really good as the genie. Like He mixes the comedy stuff, some of which works better than others, with um, like some dramatic moments like that actually worked for me and were very affecting so um and the genie gets more of an arc as well as uh jasmine yeah yeah exactly and and i think the casting i i know you don't really like the guy mina masood who plays aladdin peter but i I thought he was like terrific i thought him and uh naomi scott were just i mean they're unbelievably good looking people and so that helps a lot they're like gorgeous to look at and just mesmerizing and compelling that way but i think they also just capture the essence of those characters so well and naomi scott in particular she has this new song um that was added and that's one of those moments where i was like oh boy here comes the new song uh that just sort of feels like a box they have to check you know, in order to differentiate it from the old movie. But I think that new song that she sings, it's called Speechless, it, it like uh, encapsulates the entire purpose of the movie. Like that's the whole reason for yeah. them to make it. It's like everything seemed to to sort of ripple out from that song and she kills it. It's so good. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm shocked to report that I ended up really, really liking this movie a lot. This is a very funny practical joke. Can I get the real? 
I, I will say this: the new song feels so out of place, though. Like, I mean, it thematically, I agree with you, Ben. Like story wise, it, it, it is perfect, but it just seems so out of line with all the rest of the music in the movie. But um, um, it seems more like a like a you know, like a let it go kind of, you know, like that kind of style of. Yeah, right? like, I, I mean, I guess I see what you're talking about because a lot of the other music in the movie is sort of like upbeat and peppy, and this is more of like a dramatic song. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I can see that, but I still think you know thematically it works so well, and it it um it really justifies the movie's existence in a way that I think Beauty and the Beast didn't justify it. Like the the change in Jasmine's character, or not so much change, but um evolution of that character. Yeah. I think justifies this movie being made and the fact that kids are going to see this and, you know, have like the representation in the movie is, is such a positive force. I think, you know, like I said, there's a lot of issues that I have with, with Disney overall, but I think just looking at this as a movie, there's so much good, so much net good is going to come out of this. I think. Yeah. I think people are going to, I think kids are going to love this film. Um, Okay. Let's talk about, let's get serious guys. Uh, HBO, you know, Bringing things to conclusion, let's talk, you know, everybody wants to hear about this. Jacob, what did you think of the season finale of Barry? <laughs> Was that Barry? supposed to be like a, a humorous <laughs> reveal, Peter? <laughs> yeah, I mean, wait, people don't want to hear about Barry? <laughs> of course they, they want to hear should. about Barry. It's probably the most consistent show on HBO right now. And Barry's built around a single question, which is, can people change? I feel like a lot of shows, you know, say they're about something, but they, but they often, you know, meander. Whereas I feel every single episode of Barry has asked the question, can a person change? And explored that in some way. And last night's episode, the season two finale, directly addressed that question and gave an answer that I don't think anyone was, was expecting. And, oh boy, it is a dark, dark half hour of television. And... Bill Hader directed it, and he's directed episodes before, but this episode is just, it's terrifying it, it, uh, to watch. The violence in, in this episode is, in that Barry's, in that Barry way, not treated as a joke. It's filmed in a way that you, what happens so fast and so, uh, with such terror that you can barely quantify that's happening until it's over. And it, the, episode, the season wraps up a lot of the other arcs and opens up new ones. Every character gets something to do. Uh, Sally, uh, Barry's girlfriend in the show, her arc takes a, a also a very dark, sinister direction, but not as sinister as others. But I am eagerly waiting for season three because this season ends on such a Breaking Bad-esque note of deep, deep unpleasantness. While also being funny, because that's Barry's way, is being really funny, even as it's being the nastiest show on HBO next to Game of Thrones. Uh, ben, what did you think? Yeah, I loved it, man. I I am uh, very impressed with the consistency of the quality of the second season. I think um, the show it, it came out relatively fully formed in season one, but I feel like it it took a little bit to sort of um, figure out its style and and uh, to perfect the tone. But I feel like that's really what they've done in season two is just perfect that tone that they're going for. And um, Man, yeah, I mean, you're, we're talking about like an exponential increase, and if from season one, and if that continues, this is going to be like hands down the best show on television in season three. So I, I mean, that's a that's a big bar for it to uh, 
to leap, but um, they're, you know, they're definitely capable of getting there if they can uh, pick up the threads that they've left hanging in this season finale. So, um, and just a quick shout out to for Henry Winkler, who is like an actor that I feel like a lot of people for many, many years just sort of wrote off as like a joke. He is doing some jaw dropping dramatic work in the show. And um, I, I mean, I'm just, he won an Emmy last year, so it's not like he's He's like some unheralded, you know, this is an unheralded performance, but um, it's a deserved Emmy and he continues to do tremendous work in that show. So uh, Henry, Henry Winkler, you're the man. Yeah. And I know that uh, watching um, Game of Thrones with friends, as always, and someone said they hadn't watched Barry yet because the concept of a hitman uh, wants to be an actor sounded so hokey to them and they couldn't get beyond that. And if you're one of those people, two seasons in, you know, 16 half hour episodes, I, I think it's time to give Barry a chance if you haven't yet, because this, this show deserves the same audience as Silicon Valley and the same audience as Breaking Bad. It, it's striking both those nerves at the same time, and that's unreal. Yeah, I feel, I feel like Barry is not getting the word of mouth that I, I see like a show like Ozark getting. And I know, uh, Ben, you were really down on Ozark season two. And I feel I feel like those people should jump over to Barry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. Uh, I guess that's all the talk about on HBO. Nothing big else happened on that channel. So let's talk about John Wick Chapter Three. Jacob, you saw you saw this this week. Yeah, uh, Peter, this movie rules. This movie rules hard. Um, so I, I'm a you know a self admitted John Wick fanatic, and this is the one where I decided I think this is the most consistent uh, American action movie franchise of all time. I mean, maybe there are better individual movies, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Die Hard, you know, just to name but ones that come to mind, the later Mission Impossibles. But I think all three John Wicks are near-perfect action movies that execute their simple premises flawlessly with brilliantly directed action, great actors who aren't phoning it in, really clever writing, and just they're, up, they're upping the ante in ways where the action is getting more impressive without becoming bloated. I feel like this, these movies are still like lean, mean, and so much fun. I had a great time with John Wick 3, and I I think this is my favorite action franchise of all time. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely up there. Uh, I, I, I love this film. I love this world. I love... I, I want to spend more time in it. Uh, I, I think Ben's right. That first 30 minutes is... You can't top some of the stuff that happens in that first 30 minutes. Um, but I love watching, you know, the dogs kick ass with Halle Berry, who was not in it enough. I I love how brutal this movie is. Like, in parts where you think they're going to cut away or something, they're, like, showing you... I don't know. <laughs> they're showing you things that you shouldn't be seeing on the big screen in ways you've never seen them before. And uh, I don't know. My only complaint about this movie... And I, I wish we could talk about spoilers here. My only complaint about this movie is the more days it goes by, I'm wondering, like, the plot doesn't really make much sense to me. <laughs> and, we, should have, uh, we, have a, we should have a spoiler casting. I would love to talk about this at length because I'm not sure I agree with you there. Okay. Yeah, okay, I think the yeah. plot is pretty simple. And I would also like to join on this on this conversation. <laughs> Defend John Wick. Not that he needs any defenders. I have a question for you, HG, um, since you're piping in here. Peter described scenes that are um, you normally don't see in mainstream action movies in John Wick 3. And earlier on the Slack, we discussed how you were very averse to eye violence. So how did you deal with the eye violence in John Wick 3? Well, for John Wick, I don't mind it as much because it's so heightened and over the top. Um, and, 
yeah, <laughs> I guess I make an exception for this movie and with like action films, for example. I feel like horror films tend to get under my skin more and don't know how to explain why. Oh, my other nitpick about this movie, I wanted to see what you guys think of this, is, well, first of all, I love the, you know, the battle scene with the guys from the raid and stuff like that. Like, that's great, but I feel like this movie doesn't have a great villain for John Wick to go up against. No! I disagree completely. Yeah, you're you're wrong. (laughs) Am I wrong? Yes. HG, t- tell him why he's wrong. Tell me Mark, why I'm wrong. Mark like, Dukaskis feel... is the perfect foil for John Wick, where John Wick is the stoic, serious, stern type. Dukaskis is just buoyant and hilarious and irreverent and a fanboy oh, at that, I'm, which I'm I feel not, like... I like the fanboy stuff, but like, well, I, okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the film doesn't like build up that character be to be like this formidable bad guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just kind of shows up. He's like the secondary villain to, I think Asia Kate Dillon does a great job with their role. Uh, They have this um, real aura to them. That's just um, incredibly, you know, keep your hands dirty. Whereas Mark Dacascus gets to do the dirty work. And I like that dichotomy between the two villains and it doesn't feel too crowded or, um, and you know, I feel like you don't need something that's like, you know, world controlling. It's just a simple, uh, the f- nice simple stakes with uh, with these two. Yeah, and I think he's set up, Peter. I think, you know, you see enough of him doing like ninja shadowy stuff before he actually gets to a, a big confrontation with Wick. I, I feel like it's it's pretty well established he there. He still feels like a minion for the table. Like he just, like it doesn't feel like, it feels like this is a movie, like if this was a Star Wars movie, it feels like, you know, Luke Skywalker is fighting to the end at the Death Star and he doesn't get to fight Darth Vader, he just fights a bunch of stormtroopers. But Darth Vader is, is a is, henchman. Yeah, what are you talking about? But he, but yeah, he is an iconic henchman. I don't know. I, I, I I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Um, I just feel like it's we. It, it's kind of strange how this franchise, it's all about our hero, and there really isn't an iconic villain. I mean, I guess it's the people behind the scenes control. It's the Emperor. You know, the, those. You know what I mean? I would I would love it if when we meet the high table, the main unseen villains of the series is played by like Chow Yun Fat and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michelle Yeoh and just a bunch of like legendary older action oh, stars. That would wow. be amazing. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh. Okay. Um, now that we've talked, have we said everything we need to say about John Wick three? Not never. We'll never have to say about John Wick, but we probably should move on anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, on Friday night, they had uh, some advanced screenings of Booksmart at my local AMC theater. So I went uh, with Kitra to go see that. Um, I had been hearing a lot of great things about this film. Um, who did I hear from? Was it you, Jacob? Yeah, I loved this film itself. By yeah. Uh, and this is Olivia Wilde's uh, directorial debut, I think. Right. Yeah, her feature debut. feature debut. Um, And it's a great feature debut. I, I, as you know, am a huge fan of of coming-of-age films. I love movies that take place over the course of one night. Um, You know, Can't Hardly Wait is one of my favorites. Superbad, I love. This definitely seems like it's inspired by Superbad. Um, Coming out of this movie, this movie is a solid directorial debut. It has great characters. It's filled with laughs. Great comedic performances across the board. Uh... I I think the standout is honestly like the the, the only couple scenes with uh, Wilde's husband uh, Jason Sudeikis. I, I I loved him in this. It has a fantastic soundtrack. 
That said, going into this movie, I was – I think my expectations were just too high. I was a little disappointed. Um, not to say I didn't like the movie. Um, I I like that it has like this emotional core that it kind of gets to late in the film. And I uh, – but I feel like – I guess my problem with it, it's more of a matter of taste, and I wish the movie was more grounded. I, it, now would be the time, if Brad was on the podcast, that he would uh, jump in and yell at me. But I I feel like this movie wants to be super bad, but it's more Harold and Kumar, because it's a little bit... Every scene is a little bit ridiculous and too over-the-top to be real. And uh, that kind of annoys me a little bit, but um, but I liked it. And I will I will recommend it. Uh, but just so you know, it's not um, you know it it does go outside the bounds of like a normal high school movie. Like it, it goes to places that uh, I think are a bit ridiculous. Jacob, am I wrong? I think it is ridiculous, but I also think the ridiculous stuff is incredibly funny and. It's, and, and even though it is ridiculous, it sets up stuff that I think is genuinely emotionally true. But I think it's going to be a matter of taste, Peter. I, I think you've established, you know, what your comedic tastes are, and yeah. maybe there's no, there's no lining with that, and that's perfectly fine. I think that uh, some people are going to have like extreme emotional reactions to this film, and I, which I did, in addition to laughing a whole bunch, and you did, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I do think that there's, there, the people who react to this movie uh, the way I did will find something that they absolutely treasure, whereas I think everyone else will find a movie they like, and I think that's a really good position for a movie to be in. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you hit the nail, or hit the hammer, or the, yeah, the nail on the hammer. The hammer on the nail? One of those two. Close, close <laughs> nail enough. on the head. Nail on the head. Same. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with the hammer. The ha- yes, with the hammer. <laughs> and um, I think it is a movie I like, and I will recommend, but it's not a movie I love. Um, so yeah, this week also, I was talking about Masterclass, I think last week or the week before and Masterclass released a new class in, 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 uh, in honor of, I think world barbecuing day or something. Uh, Aaron Franklin, who owns Franklin barbecue, which is in your hometown of Austin, Texas, Jacob, and, uh, is featured in many TV shows and commercials and in, uh, John Favreau's movie chef. It's probably the best barbecue place I've ever gone to. I know Jacob probably has better, um, but... Uh, I haven't, actually. Oh. The, the hype is real. Yeah, the hype is real. Well, he filmed a masterclass teaching how to, you know, make barbecue, and I've only watched a couple episodes so far, and, you know, he starts off, like, basically showing how to cut wood and put the wood in a smoker and stuff like And, like, never, like, once does like if you want to do barbecue, you should get this kind of smoker or whatever. It's like this like big smoker in his backyard or, or whatever. So I, I'm not sure how practical this course is for anybody outside of like, you know, if someone has a huge smoker in their, their backyard in, in Texas, but uh, it is so interesting to, to find out how he is able to make this barbecue so good. Like just like all the little details that add up to this, you know, the best barbecue in the world. So uh, I would highly recommend checking out Aaron Franklin's master class. I think that's like $90 for the class or 180 for one year of subscription to all the master classes, which is what I'm doing. So I'll probably end up talking about some of those in future editions. But it, it, it is a little strange because like if you watch like Gordon Ramsay's master class, he starts out in his kitchen and he goes over like all the utensils and all the like the tools that you will need to like make 
good uh, food. And in this, like, it's just like Aaron Franklin in his backyard being like, okay, here's how you put the wood in the smoker. <laughs> so, so, yeah. But it, this makes sense, though, because in interviews you know, with local press, he's always insisted that whenever everybody says, oh, you must have a secret blend of spices, he always says, nope, salt and pepper. It's all about the wood and all about the temperature and all about the time. So it, it makes sense that he wouldn't he'd focus on that because yeah. that is what he's been saying for years. I just wish it was for more of a beginner so I could get into it, although I, I doubt I can, I'm allowed to have a smoke around my patio. So uh, anyways, um, and I watched the season finale of Survivor, which was one of the better season finales uh, in, in typical Survivor fashion. The person who should have won didn't win. Uh, it was great. I enjoyed it, even though, uh, even though I don't agree with the winner. So there you go. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? I watched the first few episodes of HBO's Chernobyl, the new miniseries from writer-creator Craig Mazin. And I was hesitant to watch this, not because it didn't look good. They've been pushing it really, really hard uh, during Game of Thrones. I, I see, see a trailer for it all the time. But because I just didn't know if I need another super depressing show in my life right now. But it turns out I, I did, because Chernobyl is exceptionally good. Uh, the, the third episode premieres tonight, uh, out of five. And the first episode deals with the disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in, his, in the Soviet Union in 1986. And the first episode is pretty much all disaster, all fires, all people dying of radiation poisoning, and things going so wrong so quickly that the show deliberately does not keep you in the loop. You do not know what went wrong, how it's going wrong, or what, even what you're seeing. And at first, I thought maybe I was missing something. Then in episode two, experts are brought in to survey the situation and episode two, very and in a way I found really pleasurable uh, as, as like storytelling. Um, the experts explain here's what's going on, here's why the things you saw in the previous episode were so bad, and here's why it's going to get a whole lot worse very quickly. And so it went from being this horrifying hour to being a talk heavy hour where the dialogue managed to make episode one better and also be just as horrifying as uh, the actual visuals of episode one. So I'm really hoping it sticks to landing. And Chris, you've seen it all for a review on the site, right? Yeah. Yes, I have. Does it stick that landing? Yes, it does. This is really good. This is, um, it's very stressful. It's a very upsetting miniseries. I think it's only five episodes, so you don't have to commit to it that much, but, uh, I watched it with my wife. My wife had the, a similar thing, Jacob, where we were watching the first episode and she kept asking me questions. And I was like, I don't know. I'm watching the same show as you. Let's let's wait and find out. And she was like, what is going So if if you're prone to questions, don't worry. They do eventually explain everything. Yeah, Jared Harris shows up and they manage to make all his exposition so terrifying because he's so worried and he's so and he comes across as, across as so smart on screen that when he's freaking out and explaining things, you're on the edge of your seat. It's really, really upsetting. Very cool. Um, and I, I've only watched a, a, like the beginning of the first episode and we were, it was like late at night and I was like, okay, we're not awake enough to watch this. So I, I've been hearing so many good things about this. So I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? So I had a chance to go to the theater and see a screening of The Dead Don't Die, which is the zombie movie that is written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch? I'm not entirely sure how to Jim pronounce Jarmusch it. Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch, okay. Uh, so, guys, I hated this movie. Just to – I'm not going to beat around the bush on this one. It has an incredible cast. Adam Driver, Bill Murray, um, Steve Buscemi, uh, Tilda Swinton, Tom Waits, Danny Glover. I mean, like, the list – I think on the poster it says – 
I'm looking at it right here, the greatest zombie cast ever disassembled. And I feel like uh, they might actually have a claim there because the cast is unbelievable, but they're just given nothing to do in this movie. This is one of the slowest, most um, sluggishly paced movies that I can remember seeing like in my entire life. I think it's only like an hour and 40 minutes, but it just feels like maybe it's less than that. Uh, but it feels like it lasts forever. It is just like an interminable movie to get through. And um, it, it's like as if somebody and this is my first Jim Jarmusch movie. So I don't know what his and I realize he's like a, you know, a staple of the independent film movement from the 90s and all of that and has made probably a bunch of great stuff. But for this being my entry point, I have like almost no interest in going back and revisiting some of his early stuff. And I, that may not be fair, but like this movie was so bad that I was very, very, very turned off to anything that he was doing. Um, I feel like it was just made by somebody who has, who had nothing to say, really nothing insightful to say. Um, and it was just, Oh my God. Has anybody else seen this here? I know we have like a relatively negative review up on the site right now from can, but has anybody seen this yet? I, uh, I got an invite to see it and all the, the bland reviews out of can just made me like killed my enthusiasm. So I didn't bother to go. And now it's sounding more and more likely that I, I made the right choice. That said, Jim Jarmusch's movies are often very slow, but he has some really, really great movies. So I would I would urge you to seek out his earlier stuff, Ben, even if you didn't like this, because uh, like Only Lovers Left Alive is really good. Dead Man is really good. They're, they're slow movies, but they're great. So uh, it does sound like this is, is a dud for him, but his, his earlier movies are good. Yeah, yeah maybe Jarmusch those... is really hard to get into, Ben, uh, but there are some good ones. But if you if you reacted so hard to the pace of this one, then it may just not be for you overall, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the pace was uh, was not necessarily the thing that bothered me as much as being forced to sit through a movie with this pace that had nothing but surface level observations to make about the state of American politics right now. It the, Basically, the movie's message boils down to Trump is bad. And it's like, oh, really? No shit. Thanks a lot for making me sit through a whole movie for that. So, um, yeah, anyway, I, I'll be curious to see if anybody here actually ever gives this movie a shot and if you end up disagreeing with me if i'm like way off off the mark on this especially those of you who have seen his earlier work and maybe can contextualize it better you know up against his entire filmography but uh yeah i was not a fan of this one um so the other movie that i saw that was way better than this and, and or i enjoyed it way more anyway uh is the night of the hunter which is from 1955 this is on the criterion channel right now um it is the only movie directed by charles lawton who is a, an actor who was been you know he, he was an oscar winner who has been in a bunch of stuff witness for the prosecution and uh, jamaica inn and mutiny on the bounty and spartacus i mean he's been in a lot of things but this was the only movie he ever made as a director and this movie rules. It is uh, about a priest who is actually a serial killer, and he's played by Robert Mitchum. And he just sort of rolls into this town and basically ends up trying to seduce the wife of a guy who robbed a bank for $10,000. And the guy has been taken out of the picture. So Robert Mitchum's character just comes in to sort of prey on this family 
and uh, and try to get this money. And it's all about greed and uh, avarice. And it's like, you know, this dark, moody piece. Um, <clears throat> I think HCU would really a- a- appreciate it based on your love of like, you know, gothic uh, mm-hmm. related things. Um, just the cinematography in this is so gorgeous. And um, the acting is is so on point. I mean, I you know, I think for a lot of people, this is, we were talking a lot about uh, A Star is Born last year with Bradley Cooper making his directorial debut. And there was a big discussion about actors stepping behind the camera and, um, you know, how a lot of times that just doesn't work for one reason or another. There are relatively few uh, directorial debuts from actors that work really well. I'm glad to hear that Booksmart is another one that that does work. Um, but this one, I think, is up there in like or has to be up there in the conversation of like the best movies that are that were ever directed by uh, people who are prim- primarily known as actors. So it's called The Night of the Hunter, and I would highly, highly recommend it. It's on Criterion Channel right I now. I wanted to jump in here, too, because Night of the Hunter is amazing. Uh, and if you didn't recommend HT, I was going to do so right here. <laughs> because this is uh, not only... Uh, it's a film noir fairy tale, is, is, is how the best way I oh, describe it. Oh, wait, that's it. like my two favorite things. Yeah. And Guillermo del Toro has cited this many times as, as one of his chief inspirations for um, for Pan's Labyrinth and other films like that. So even though we don't may not see an immediate connection... Uh, the film is shot in a way where it feels like um, a fable reinterpreted through someone's nightmares. It is incredibly good. Yeah, and a lot of it is told through the perspective of the kids in this family. And and it's got a lot of that, um, yeah, like Americana childhood vibe. But this this looming predator is just lurking in the distance. And Robert Mitchum, who is a guy who's probably best known for like noir movies like out of the past it's just like so scary in this movie it's i think you would really you would really dig it hd okay i'm gonna check it out um what else have i watched oh i i dvr'd a movie from uh off of uh uh, turner classic movies called the detective or that's what it's called in the united states Uh, i guess abroad it's referred to as father brown this is a 1954 british mystery film that is also a comedy and it starred alec guinness as a a priest who basically gets in a battle of wits with a thief who is trying to steal um, the priest's cross that there's the, (laughs) even just getting into the the basic plot of the movie. I mean, it gets a little convoluted, but it's basically like a, like an oceans 11 style movie where uh, the priest who is like supposed to be this upstanding figure in society he has learned the tricks of the trade of, you know, how to be a thief and a detective and all of this. And he, he basically like puts himself in the minds of um, thieves and killers and things like that. Uh, and he learned all this stuff from his parishioners. So it's this really fun performance uh, performance from Alec Guinness, who I hadn't really seen in very many things outside of the star Wars movies. Um, so anybody who's interested in in just checking out early Alec Guinness stuff, uh, you'll find a lot to enjoy here. His performance is uh, is pretty enjoyable. It's a little ridiculous at times, as is the movie overall. But there's there's a, a really good kernel of a story there, um, even though a few scenes sort of meander off and and go into some weird directions. But um, yeah, this one's a lot of fun. It's called the 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 te- <clears throat> excuse me the detective or Father Brown, depending on where you are. Uh, and then finally, I saw Shoplifters, and I know this was HT's. Uh, what number one movie of last year, I think, right? Yes, it was. Okay. So I, you know, obviously I, I heard from you that this was uh, a must see. This is on Hulu right now. I would recommend for people who have not seen it yet and are interested in checking it out. If you watch it on Hulu, don't read the synopsis 
on Hulu, like the the brief, you know, like one or two sentence synopsis there, because it gives away something that happens an hour and a half into the movie. And the movie is not much longer than that. So my wife read it before we start, before we push play and was just like waiting for this thing to happen the whole time. And I didn't know that that was going to happen. So it, it drastically changed my experience. I guess this is a larger part of the conversation we've been having about spoilers. But anyway, um, yeah, this movie is very good. I, I This is the first film that I've ever seen from, um, what is his name? Uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, Koreeda, excuse me. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if this is like representative of his work overall, but I really enjoyed the sort of, this is another movie that has sort of like a slow pace, but it's very lyrical and it's very, um, you know, it, it, it's confident in its storytelling. It settles into a small story and knows what it's doing and just takes its time to establish these really interesting, fascinating dynamics between this family or they're not a real family, but sort of are related by blood, but they are a family. They're this, these group of outcasts and um, people living in Tokyo who come from different aspects of life. And uh, a new young girl is added to their ranks and um, she is abused and, and sort of is taken under the wing of this family. And, um, it's a small story, but it's, um, it's really beautifully told. And I, I think a couple of the, uh, plot machinations may have gotten lost in translation for me near the end, but I'm, I have the slash film cast review of, uh, shoplifters, which HT was a guest on queued up to listen to, uh, maybe this afternoon after I'm done working. So, um, I'm looking forward to diving in and, and reading a little bit more about this movie. And, um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it though. It's on Hulu right now. The Slash film cast was a little uh, less warm to this movie than I was. So just a warning because they kind of come down hard on it. And I was oh, very, wow. I was a little upset on the, on the podcast. Oh man. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And no, I, I've also been waiting to see this movie until it became available somewhere. And I saw it just recently it became available on Hulu. It's on my uh, watch next or whatever on the Apple TV. So I'm excited to see it. Um, Chris, you got to preview some episodes of the new black mirror. Uh, yes, I, I got all three of the new Black Mirror um, episodes. I can't give away anything yet because it's embargo, but I'll just say it's good. That doesn't count as a review. I can get away with saying that it's good. Uh, if you weren't a fan of the of the previous season, which I actually wasn't that much, uh, this is this is better and it's shorter. There's only three episodes, so it's easier to get through. Uh, beyond that. What did I watch? Well, well, oh. well with the, the 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 anniversary of the Matrix, everybody's revisiting the Matrix, but you're revisiting another Keanu film. Yes, well, I, I actually watched. Yeah. I got the Matrix on 4K a little while ago before it was the anniversary and watched it. So instead, I rewatched Speed, the the movie that, even though it wasn't Keanu Reeves' first action movie because he made Point Break before that, this was sort of the thing that solidified him as a, an action movie guy. And uh, Speed rules. It's still good. It's still great. It's I think it's one of the the best action movies ever made. It's got a really tight script um graham yost is credited but really joss whedon came in and, and did a really big rewrite on it even though he's not credited so that's kind of the reason why it has this really snappy clever funny script and is really well directed you know jan debont you know he, he started as a cinematographer so he has this really great handle on shooting action because he did cinematography on you know die hard and all these other action movies so he really i don't know if he still does because he hasn't made a good movie in a long time but he he really used to have this great grasp on filming uh action sequences and it's just this really tight funny entertaining 
action movie and i wish they would still make movies like this they really don't anymore everything's like you know kind of boring when it comes you know aside from you know john wick and stuff like that there's i can't remember the last time i really enjoyed uh, an action movie outside of you know john wick and mission impossible and i wish they would still make stuff like this and they don't anymore and it's a shame but speed it's great yeah i was actually gonna ask you that i was gonna say why don't they make more movies like speed i love speed and also why does speed not get its due i feel like it is not like in the movies you hear a list, it's not like up there with Die Hard, but I feel like it should be. I I agree. I don't understand why. I don't think people dislike Speed. I yeah. think people just. But it feels I mean, like it, like it, I feel like people treat it more as a popcorn action movie than like a action classic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it definitely had an impact on culture. You know, the the jokes were everywhere. You couldn't get away from just the concept of you know the the bus that will blow up but yeah i don't know why it doesn't have as big of a cultural impact now as say something like die hard when i really do think it is if not equal to die hard it's up there with die hard as being this really clever action movie that doesn't get its due i don't know maybe it'll change now because i'm talking about it and i'm going yeah. to i'm going to set the trend <laughs> everyone go out and revisit speed chris is uh starting trends now hcc red dune you finished reading Dune last week. Uh, did, did you watch the movie finally? I did. I, I prepared for it by ordering some extra spicy curry. And uh, <laughs> I uh, wanted to let the spice flow, as they say in Dune. <laughs> um, this is a beautiful disaster of a movie, and I didn't totally hate it. I, The choices that David Lynch makes in this movie are bizarre and wild and a little bit uh, just baffling, but it's something. Like, he's doing something with this film. And, like, honestly, reading Dune and um, imagining, like, trying to bring that to life on the big screen, like, I feel like David Lynch did it in the only way that could have been possible at the time while still translating and uh, some elements that into a more bizarre version of them than I could have imagined. Um Basically, he he shot for the stars and he landed and broke his neck, but he did it. <laughs> so Dune is um, they, yeah. There's a there's so many strange choices. Like for example, the frequent um, voiceovers that are the the people's thoughts throughout the books are um, dis- presented in the sort of whispered tones throughout the film which are become increasingly hilarious because it's just like it, there's no there's no way of like presenting people's thoughts um except for doing these like weird whispers and uh it's it's also fascinating to me because i, I felt like because this came out um after star wars became a major phenomenon uh the david lynch dune leaned more into the sci-fi elements that i feel like didn't quite exist or wasn't as present in the book. So I could almost feel like they're trying to make their next Star Wars, and but like you know, the more adult Star Wars, because there was a lot of body horror. There's a lot of just mature and grotesque stuff happening in here. Um, but like the way that the designs and the settings were made were felt very in the vein of Star Wars. And even the score uh, was like, I think one of the, the frequent motifs of it like, felt, sounded very similar to um, uh one of John Williams scores. I think it was like Darth Vader's motif, which I found hilarious. So yes, I think that in trying to become more like Star Wars and trying to lean into those sci-fi elements, that's where Dune kind of stumbles because when it becomes incredibly weird and very high fantasy, then it 
it does feel like a movie that could have succeeded. Um, but it does not. And that's okay because it's just a weird movie that exists in its little corner and it's trying to do its own thing. I feel like there's a bunch of movies that were supposed to be something else. And because the Star Wars came out, like, like if you look at like, a, what is that movie? That Disney movie, Black Hole? Like that totally got changed into kind of like a Star Wars-y thing. And it was in development before, uh, you know, Star Wars. So uh, I feel like there's a good list there of movies like that. Um, mm-hmm. What other movies did you watch this week? A much better movie that I watched is a film called Kylie Blues. And this is a movie I watched on the Criterion Channel streaming service. It's directed by Began. This is his directorial debut, uh, which introduced him as the new sort of great Chinese auteur of like this current time. He has a new film right out, um, out right now called A Long Day's Journey Into the Night or Into Night um, that is is showing in select theaters. It's showing in New York still, I think, um, but you might be hard pressed to find it elsewhere. Uh, it's getting his new film is getting a lot of um, rave reviews, so I wanted to check out his first film, uh, which is this very dreamlike, incredibly mesmerizing journey uh, about this one man who uh, takes a trip through the rural provinces of China to find his nephew who has gone missing. And this journey becomes both physical and metaphysical as he ends up um, kind of drifting through dreams and reality and fantasy. Uh, It's really fascinating and really hypnotic film. Uh, I don't know how to describe it um, other than like it's very base premise, but um, I recommend it. It's just incredibly, beautiful and entrancing film that will uh, transport you. Hmm. And uh, you watch Good Omens? Yes. So uh, my review of Good Omens is up on the site right now if you want to check it out. Uh, Good Omens is, um, it hits Amazon Prime next week on March, uh, not March, sorry, May 31st. It's May now. and um, I got to see all six episodes of this miniseries before it hits the service. This was one of my most anticipated TV series of the year. I had read the book by Neil Gaiman. I feel like so much about this is like your thing. Like this is like, yes. yeah. Oh, no, I, re- I really enjoyed the book. And um, I liked the show a lot. And I think that um, the casting of David Tennant and Michael Sheen were a, was a stroke of genius because they are incredible and funny and just magnetic to watch. Uh, when the problem is when the show takes away their focus from them, it becomes less fun. But it's still incredibly enjoyable and um, uh, something that uh, is doing something a little different. It um, is a fantasy comedy about the coming apocalypse and the birth of the Antichrist. And David Tennant plays a demon named Crowley who has a wary friendship with an angel named Aziraphale, played by Michael Sheen. And their friendship has spanned eons uh, since they were there at the beginning of time. And when they learn that the apocalypse is coming, they try to avert it. Um, But it's definitely more of like a comedy of manners. It's very just irreverent and funny. There's this sort of Monty Python-esque uh, visual style to it as well as the comedy to it as um, too. Uh, and while Tennant and Sheen are just heaven to watch, uh, the other supporting characters are a bit of a drag sometimes, but it doesn't take away from 
the uh, funny as hell and enjoyable as hell uh, tone of the rest of the series. Very cool. And we'll do a link to your Good Omens review in the show notes. So I guess this brings us to the end of what we've been watching. Nothing else aired on television this week that was important whatsoever. <laughs> except for uh, uh yeah game of thrones okay game of thrones aired the season or series finale uh ben and jacob you watched it ben what did you think i really liked it i think uh you know it's sort of a bittersweet ending that's that's the word that george r, r. martin used to describe what he planned or plans to do with his ending of the book series that the show is based on and I know that this season as a whole has been really divisive for people, but I think Jacob and I both really, really enjoyed. I mean, I don't know. It's so difficult. There, There's a line in this episode where Tyrion Lannister says, ask me again in 10 years about whether or not Jon Snow made the correct decision to do something. And I, I think that is a really good line that that sort of sums up how we're all going to be thinking about Game of Thrones for the next few years. Like we it, it we're so close to the, the airing of this episode that it's almost impossible to um, accurately assess the show's legacy this soon. But I think um, in, in the moment right now, I'm largely pleased with what happened in last night's episode. I feel like a lot of the characters that I wanted to see have satisfying conclusions got those conclusions um in a way that i think makes sense for the characters and, and what we've seen of them so far so um jacob i'll, I'll pass the ball to you yeah ben and i wrote a, our, our joint review as usual it's up on the site right now and ben i'm gonna miss reviewing this show with you <laughs> um quite a bit too me too um it's this, this show means a lot to me as we discussed in our you know big spoiler episode last week where we discussed the penultimate episode and I was expecting the episode to really hit hard like last week's did. And it really didn't. It had some really tough choices and went to some maybe predictable places in the first half so that we knew it had to happen. But then it gave the characters I love, the survivors, uh, a send off, I think, that they all earned and a send off that made me very happy. And it left them all, it left all the survivors ready for new adventures and adventures that I'll, I'll never get to see, but being able to know they're having them gives me, gives me a satisfaction that uh, makes me genuinely happy and game of Thrones never makes you happy. It makes you miserable. So the idea of game of Thrones ending on a note that left me feeling positive and warm and satisfied. That's all I could have possibly asked for after all these years. Yeah, that's a big deal for, for a show with, <laughs> with a tone that's been as dark as it has been. And you two are like, a lot more positive about this or our last couple episodes than people I follow online, like David Chen and stuff like that. Um, it seems like there's been a very divisive response to this, not just the last couple episodes, but this season as a whole. It almost feels like to me, you know, I, I don't watch Game of Thrones, so it's very hard for me to even talk about this. But if just from the outside looking in, it feels kind of like the last season of Lost for me like there was such like a mixed response to that and specifically the ending and that whole season as a whole like why, why do you guys think that is especially with this episode i think a, a key part of it is the, the shift in you know the material i mean even if george r. r martin gave the showrunners an outline of what he planned they are very you know different writers than he is without the source material they had to the, the show 
took a fundamental difference in the way it told its stories. And I think some people um, never got over that. And it's not the prerogative to get over it. The show did change. And for some people, it changed too much. And for some people, things that mattered to them uh, stopped being a priority for the writers who started prioritizing things that mattered to them instead. And I don't, you know, blame anyone for not liking what the show became. I was able to roll with it. I still loved it till the end, even though I think that a lot of the observations about why it didn't work or didn't work as well are well argued and make sense. Uh, but I do think that anything this popular, anything that inspires this much passion is going to get those those divisive responses. You know, like I hated Lost when it ended. I was mad at the whole show. I was angry. I watched it. But now years later, I still do not like the last season of Lost, but I treasure the rest of that show. I do not regret it for a second. That show was a fun, fundamental part of who I was at that time. In the same way that Game of Thrones has become a fundamental person of who I am now. So I just hope that in when the dust settles, you know, Game of Thrones fandom uh, or game people who enjoy Game of Thrones, it stops being less about how they didn't like the ending or how they liked the ending and more about how that was a pretty fun 10 years, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And HD, I know you stopped watching a couple seasons back. Are you, mm-hmm. Now that you've heard what happens in the ending, because I know you read all the spoilers and stuff, like, does this make <laughs> you want to watch them, or are you just going to wait for the books? That's, they're, they're just never coming, right? I'm just waiting for the books that are never coming. Um, yeah, I, I, had, I had my um, reasons for parting with Game of Thrones. The, this story, the Song of Ice and Fire story, is something that was really special to me, in which I had a lot of investment in the characters. And the show, at first, too, was like very formative for me as well, because that's how I made a lot of my friends in college and just kind of part of that experience in my life. But, you know, it, it went in a direction that I really did not like and watching the show became more of um a burden than an actual joy so i part i stopped watching and i don't regret that i do miss the character sometimes um and i i did like you know watch clips of my favorite characters as this final season went on uh so i could see where where they ended up and um i do i probably i think that like this is where george r, r. martin will probably take um his his series if he ever finishes it um but i would be more satisfied to hear it coming from from his point of view and his writing uh rather than um the show and the the show writers who i've had my issues with yeah for sure okay let's move on to what we've been eating uh, this last week, I discovered that a pizza place in in Southern California. It's it's around the Hollywood area. It's called Lucifer's Pizza. They have a couple, or I think a few different shops. Um, I've always loved their pizza, but now being on a low carb diet, a, you know, keto diet, I can only eat twenty carbs a day. Uh, has prevented me from eating anything other than like uh, the Quest makes a frozen pizza. We've talked about on this podcast, um, but Lucifer's now has a cauliflower pizza, which, by the way, doesn't mean anything because uh, I think California Pizza Kitchen introduced the cauliflower pizza, but it's still like 15 carbs a slice of pizza. So um, don't think that just because you're eating cauliflower pizza that it's low carb or that it's even better for you. It can be more calories and be, you know, whatever. Um, I guess if you try and get away from, you know, the the bread or the – yeah. So – um. But uh, Lucifer's, I emailed the owners, and they told me that the whole pizza crust as a whole was eight carbs. Um, I ordered their ring burner, which is like their spicy. I got a medium spice level, and it. I highly recommend it. I did my my blood test before and after. It did not affect it. So I've I've eaten this twice now. Um, 
And uh, so if you're in Southern California, if you're in the Hollywood area and you're trying to eat better or eat low carb, I would highly recommend checking out Lucifer's Pizza and their cauliflower pizza crust and especially their ring burner pizza. So, um, Jacob, what have you been eating? Uh, at your recommendation, I flung around the trying high key cookies, and they're essentially a low carb, low sugar cookie, and they taste very much like a Chips Ahoy cookie. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoy them a great deal. My only issue is cost. It's a Amazon has three bags for thirteen bucks, which is a little, little pricey. Uh, each bag probably has two servings in it, uh, but they are very good. And I'm just trying to parcel them out so I don't, you know, overdo it or don't blow through them too quickly. But as an alternative, uh, dessert alternative, uh, it is one of the best ones I've had so far. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And let's move on to our last segment, what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? I had my most recent Dungeons & Dragons session, uh, one of the games I do not run. And a few weeks ago, I talked about retiring my current character because he had reached the end of the arc I did not know was ending until I realized it was time. And so today, a, a new character joined the adventuring party, uh, and he is an orc barbarian named Horatio Limthrasher, and he um, he is backpacking through this medieval world from a, from across the ocean, where he's from sort of a upper middle class background. And is totally unaware that in this world, people hate orcs and want to kill them. So he's just this um, kind of clueless um, upper middle class guy who just got out of college and wants to see the world. And the same way people say, I'm going to go backpack through Eastern Europe where it's cheap and and, um, and everything. And there's remnants of, you know, um, the Soviet Union. This guy is doing that, except that he's not aware of the fact that um, everybody's going to want to kill him. So it's, it's been a very fun character. And in our first session, he met a talking sword that um, is prejudiced against orcs. And now he has a magical, powerful sword that feels destined to be wielded by him, even though it hates him for being an orc. And it's a very interesting little buddy cop thing going on. Very cool. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of everything we mentioned in today's podcast on SlashFilm.com and LinkedIn show notes. That includes uh, the that Lord of the Rings audiobook HT is listening to, the Good Omens review that she uh, turned in, and uh, Ben and Jacob's Game of Thrones review. Uh, and you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. I mean, I won't see you tomorrow because I'll be traveling to a galaxy far, far down the five to Anaheim. But but someone here will be seeing you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob? I, I know Brad isn't here, but I, I do have the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian here. What chapter today, Jacob? What? I have opened it up to the juvenile delinquents chapter. I don't think anybody here is of that age. Well, Peter, you'd be smarter if you smarted in the right places. Uh, what? Chris, Chris, that guy... He belongs to a gang of boys who are alike in many disrespects. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that HT, she has no respect for age unless it's bottled. Oh, my. And Ben, did you hear Ben joined a union? A teenage muggers union. <laughs> 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 Gotta protect your rights. <laughs>
I don't know. Um, I don't know what to do with this, Jacob. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what to do with it. You can be as tranquil as a Texas cyclone. Does Does Louis A. Sapien have a book of like comebacks that I can buy to read to your your insults? <clears throat> uh, Louis A. Safian, a.k.a. the master of insult, is the author of 2,000 insults for all occasions, 2,000 more insults, <laughs> jokes and insults for both sexes, and insults and puns for love and marriage. But no comebacks. Uh, let's see, I'm looking through the also available section. There is 5,000 side-splitting jokes and one-liners. There is the Snark Handbook, Insult Edition, Comebacks, Taunts, and Affronteries by Lawrence Dorfman. The illustrated Jacob, dictionary. Jacob, Jacob, yes. this is so elaborate. You can just say that you are Louis A. Safian. All right? <laughs> we know that you're writing all of this. You don't have to go through this elaborate. I mean, the charade. pen name is so fake, anyway, Jacob. Just admit it. Ben, By... the more I see of you, the worse I like you. <laughs> By the way, I I hope that those side splitting jokes are so side splitting that they actually like spill all our organs and guts outside of the sides of our bodies. <laughs> Well, you wound up the cat, put out your wife, and got into bed with the clock. 